Hey there, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Inside BS Show. Today, I've got your secret weapon for you. That's right. You heard me correctly. This show is going to share with you something that has helped me be successful in my career, but it is something that everyone should be practicing. I don't care if you're an independent professional, you're a lawyer, CPA, financial advisor. I don't care if you're an entrepreneur looking to grow a business. I don't care if you run a sales team that has 450 people. It doesn't matter if you're just an individual sales executive trying to meet your quota or trying to blow your goal away. What we're talking about today is critical to your success because we're talking about empathy. Now, I know what you're thinking. Empathy, oh, that's, you know, that's what you have to fake if you want to meet members of the opposite sex. No, empathy has to be genuine. And my guest today is going to share with us not only why it works, but how it works and how you can improve your empathy edge. In fact, she wrote the book. The book is titled The Empathy Edge, Harnessing the Value of Compassion as an Engine for Success. My guest is Maria Ross, and she believes that cash flow, creativity, and compassion are not mutually exclusive. As the founder of Red Slice, she advises entrepreneurs and fast-growing businesses on building irresistible brand stories that connect with customers and accelerate growth. The book that I just mentioned, The Empathy Edge, Harnessing, value, uh, harnessing the Value of Compassion as an Engine for Success, explores empathy as a competitive business advantage, and it was named by Forbes as a top 11 book, Redefining Leadership. Maria has also... Maria is also the author of Branding Basics for Small Businesses and The Juicy Guides for Entrepreneurs. She understands the power of empathy on brand and personal levels. In 2008, shortly after launching her business, she suffered a ruptured brain aneurysm that almost killed her. And it inspired her acclaimed best-selling memoir, Reboot My Brain. Maria has spoken to audiences ranging from the New York Times to blog her to Salesforce. She hosts the Empathy Edge podcast and has appeared in numerous media outlets, including MSNBC, ABC News, Forbes.com, and Entrepreneur. She writes for many outlets, including columns on Entrepreneur.com and Huffington Post. She lives in San Francisco uh, in the Bay Area with her husband, her young son, and her precious mutt, who I believe happens to be a lab. Please Please join me in welcoming Maria Ross to the Inside BS Show. <laughs> you know, if you can't remember the name of your own show, you got big problems, Maria. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> All right, it's so okay let's uh, let's get one thing straight. You have a lab. How old is the lab? What's the lab's name? He is. Yeah, he's definitely a black lab mix. Okay. I don't know what he's mixed with, but he's on the small side, which is like the perfect size lab. He's like uh. a mini lab. And he is 13, going to be 14 in March. Ooh, he's a senior citizen. Getting gray. Yeah. yeah. And um, how many pounds does he weigh? Just curious. He's about 40 pounds. Uh, he's like 40's the perfect size dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I get it. I love, uh, so we we got dogs. My family got uh, two dogs during the pandemic. We got um, American <laughs> Bulldogs. One of them 
Interestingly enough, their brothers are from the same litter, but apparently they had different fathers or grandfathers. One of them has a little lab in him, and he is less serious, far more playful, and always getting into some kind of mischief. So of uh, we Beautiful. we we love we love dogs, and I found that I have a I, I have a, a new kinship with dog people. So welcome to the show as a uh, as a fellow dog person. As a um, dog mom. Let's let's talk about uh, first of all. Let's talk about uh, how empathy became your focus. Um, take us take us through your story first. I mean the the brain aneurysm. That's that that's that that's really serious. You can't get much more serious than that. Explain what happened there, and then take us through how you came to becoming an expert on empathy. Yeah. So I've been in marketing and consulting and branding my entire career. I originally worked with a management consulting firm, and then went back to my love of marketing. Um, for large companies, small companies, I did a stint at an advertising agency and then um, began work in technology mar marketing, both in the dot-com era, um, as well as in just B2B marketing. And then I launched my own brand consultancy in 2008, Red Slice. And so now I work with entrepreneurs. I work with fast growth companies on building a brand story that stands out, that connects with the right people and also accelerates sales, as you talked about. And empathy is a huge part of marketing success. That is exactly what the best marketers are able to do is be empathetic toward their customers. What, Who are they? What are their lives like? What do they value? What do they fear? And being able to offer products and services that meet their needs, you can't do that without empathy. And we've, we can see bad marketing around us that tries to do it without empathy, right? So um, so empathy's always been a strong theme, even though I never called it that when I was working with executives and working with teams. And um, around 2016, there was a lot going on in our world and a lot going on, some really bad behaviors of leadership. And I was, you know, looking at government leadership, business leadership, scandals, you know, every, you, you name it, it was all happening. And at that time, I was, my son was two and a half years old and I was reading books to him about sharing, compassion, empathy, like trying to teach him that the, the results of his actions and how might other people feel and considering other people's feelings when you do things or make decisions. And it, it was a really hard time because I was like, why bother mm -hmm. if all we see around us are successful leaders that don't subscribe to that theory. So I began three years of research to say, there's got to be a way that we can actually put empathy into action. It wasn't enough for us to all be wringing our hands that we have this big empathy gap in the world. And what do we do? And everyone just needs to be nicer. So I researched what empathy was, what it wasn't. Um, can it be taught? But more importantly, how could we apply it as a competitive advantage as a leader, as a business? Because again, as a marketer and as a human being, we all know that selfish behaviors motivate people to adopt new behaviors, mm -hmm. right? So selfish motives. And so if I could sort of find the data and the research that said empathy is not just good for society, it's great for business. I thought I could write a playbook that we could give to skeptics and say, this is why the company needs to care about this. This is not just a soft skill. This is a skill that impacts the bottom line. And I was overjoyed to find out there's a ton of research and data out there mm. on everything from empathy, boosting innovation, boosting customer loyalty, um, increasing talent retention, increasing being able to attract the best talent. Um, and it translates into sales. It translates into market leadership. So um, that is sort of what led me into the book. And now, you know, again, even with my brand work, empathy has always been a part of that. And now it's really getting people to 
to create customer centered and also employee centered businesses because brand is not just about the external marketing. It's about the internal culture as well. Mm -hmm. You have to live a brand from the inside out. So long story short, that's how that happened. But to your, to your question about the brain aneurysm, when that happened in the beginning of my business, I learned a powerful lesson during that experience because I had an amazing experience at the hospital where I was being cared for. And it, I le later learned that it was empathy by design. It wasn't just that I just had lucked into some really nice, compassionate, empathetic caregivers and, you know, nurses and surgeons. There's actually a business case for why hospitals adopt patient and family centered care. And it goes back to, again, those selfish motives, higher profits, lower costs. Yeah. So there's, there's definitely a business reason to be looking at this. Now, again, you want to adopt it, like you said, in a genuine way, mm -hmm. but companies that do so, especially the pandemic, we're seeing that they're winning right now. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I that's a hundred percent true. Tell me, tell me a little bit about the reception you get when you walk into the CEO's office and you say, listen, here's what we need to do. We need to, we need to take your HR folks. We need to take your sales team. We need to take all everybody at this level of management and above through empathy training. What is the, what is the reaction when you talk about that with senior leadership in some companies? Well, I don't offer empathy training per se okay. as my client engagements, but I do get, it's funny that you say that I, my whole brand process revolves around a cross-functional leadership team, mm -hmm. not just the marketing team. So I do have to get the HR people, the product people, the salespeople in the room and get them to not only be empathetic with each other in terms of their perspective of how they view the customer and the product or service, but get them to then think about their specific role and how it impacts the customer. Mm. So I'm stealthily guiding them to think about empathy. We're talking about who our ideal clients or customers are and not just who they are in terms of title and, you know, role in the company, but who are they as people? Yeah. And often, you know, as humans, we buy based on emotion and logic, whether you sell B2B or not, it doesn't matter. Right. So even if you're spending your company's money, there's an emotional reason that you make buying decisions. And so the, I try to open the eyes of the teams that I'm working with to say, we need a story that connects with the emotion. It has to be a genuine story. It can't mm. be manufactured because people will see through that veneer very easily. But what, you know, why are you guys here? You could have chosen to work anywhere else. Why are you working here? What is it that gets you here in the morning? What is it that you do for your customers beyond just sell them software or mm -hmm. sell them widgets or whatever. And I, I, I cultivate and I ignite those conversations with a cross-functional team. So they're, they're getting empathy training, but it's kind of like hidden. It's like giving my son vegetables with ketchup on it. Right. right. <laughs> kind of like, oh, and then they see the power of it when they see the results of the story and how they can stand out in the market by just elevating the truth of what's already there. But you know, not stopping at talking about features and functions, but yeah. really trying to emotionally connect with people. You know, one of the one of the questions that I have everybody ask when they're when they're going through the sales process, regardless of the business that they're in, is, well, two twofold, right? What, what's the outcome you're hoping to achieve, and then why is this important to you personally? And it mm -hmm. strikes me that. That question, I, and I've had people asking it, I've asked it myself in a sales setting for years and years and years, but it strikes me that that question is, it's empathetic in nature and it, it sets the groundwork for 
hey, I care about you as a person because that I, I teach that as like the magic sales question, right? Mm -hmm. And now I realize after, not only after reading the book, after talking to you and, and having put all of this in, in context, that's what that's doing. It's showing the other person that I care. It's empathetic. So anybody who thinks these are soft skills, think again. These are, you know, these are, this is, this is your secret weapon. And before, before we, we um, started, you know, recording this, I mentioned Chris Voss to, to you. Chris Voss is a, is a, a longtime FBI negotiator. Now he's, he runs his own negotiating company, uh, the Black Swan Group. And the the foundation of his negotiating principles, which have beaten Harvard trained negotiators in a business setting and gotten hostages out alive countless times. The foundation of it is what he calls tactical empathy. So talk about genuine empathy versus trying to appear empathetic and why the second one is very dangerous. Well, before I dive into that, I just want to give you one little nugget and give the listeners a little nugget that empathy is actually the number one trait of successful salespeople. Interesting. Yeah. And now it is also combined with high ambition. So you can't just em empathize your way into making your sales numbers or, right. you know, crushing your goals. But the idea of being able to be in the moment and listen to the needs of the prospect you're talking to is so important to actually creating that relationship where you build trust. And, to, and then to your point, uh, the FBI using that as a tactic for, for, uh, I love the term tactical empathy, but I'm going to be having a guest on my podcast in a, in a few weeks who is a former behavioral analyst with the FBI and same thing, because it's about building trust. And mm -hmm. when I spoke with him, it was also about, it, it's not about lying or conning people. Empathy is about really just understanding what motivates someone else and understanding the world from their point of view, and then being able to address that when you're trying to find common ground. So you're not sort of tricking them into doing what you want. You're actually speaking to what they want, what they desire, what they value. And you can only do that, like you said, with active listening and being able to have that conversation. So to avoid that veneer is really about walking the talk. So as an example, if you are trying to build an empathetic brand, you know, the social memes are not enough. We, we, you know, last year we experienced everything going on about racial injustice and the outcries for, for racial equity. And there were a lot of well-intentioned businesses who put out all these wonderful, inspirational, warm and fuzzy social memes. Genuine empathy is what are you actually doing on the inside to fulfill that promise? And you can say this veneer about anything. Empathy, if you go out there and say you're an innovative company, if you go out there and say you're a customer-centric company, how are you actually walking your talk? What are your policies? What are your practices? How are people trained? How are people hired? How are people rewarded in the organization? For example, taking it back to that, you know, an outcry for social justice. If you're putting these great memes out there that makes people think you're an empathetic organization, great. But have you changed your recruiting pipeline? Right. Have you changed your training? Are you igniting really candid conversations within your, your employee base? What are you doing on the inside that will make us believe the claim that you're making. And that's how you avoid the empathy veneer is that you live it from the inside out, from, from the individual level of leaders acting with empathy towards their teams and making tough decisions with empathy and with respect and dignity mm. to how you're operationalizing empathy within your company. What are, again, what are the policies, practices, reward structures, accountability structures, so people know you're walking your talk? Yeah. 
Now, in the in the book, you talk about emotional empathy and cognitive empathy, right? What, what's what's the difference between the two, and you know, how do we make sure that we're demonstrating emotional empathy? Because I, I think that's what resonates with people. Well, you you tell us which which resonates with people, and and you know, is there one that you lead with? Uh, explain the difference. Yeah, I think it's before we launch into that, I think it's important to understand what empathy is not. And empathy is not about being nice mm-hmm. because there's people that can be really nice, but they're not actually seeing things from your point of view. They right. just bake you really nice cookies, mm-hmm. really good cookies. So it's not about being nice. It's also not about being a doormat. You know, that's that's often the the pushback you get from leaders is if I'm empathetic, I'm going to lose the respect of my team. Yeah. No, because you can actually be a very strong, confident, decisive leader and you can do it with empathy. And I often talk about one of my most empathetic bosses um, was someone actually who had to lay off the entire marketing team, mm-hmm. which is not something anybody wanted, right. but it was the way that he did it. And this, this guy is super successful. He has started and sold multiple companies in the course of his career. So, you know, it's not about, it's not about being nice. It's not about being a doormat. It's not about, it's not even about agreeing with someone. It's just being able to see their point of view and then use that information to make a decision, which when you do that, it's often perceived as a compassionate act, Mm. even again, if it's a tough business decision. But um, emotional empathy is more like what we think of, which is where the pushback comes in in leadership circles. We think of that like, I'm literally feeling what you're feeling. I'm you know sitting on the floor crying with my employees in a corner, right? Mm-hmm. It is when you can actually feel what someone else is feeling, whether you have experienced that yourself or whether you you know it's bringing up something for you that's a similar, experience and you're like you can really feel the feelings you you know you start to cry you start to shake you start to you know whatever you start to get angry for someone but cognitive empathy is the part that actually resonates more with business people because it's about seeing things from another person's perspective i don't necessarily have to feel what you feel but i can ask questions and actively listen and be present and at least understand your context mm. and understand how you got there mm-hmm. That is cognitive empathy. I can imagine what it might be like. I can never know what will what it'd be like to be you and experience what you've experienced. You know, we've all we've all heard stories of, you know, war refugees or, you know, people who've been in abusive relationships. And maybe we've never had that experience, but we can cognitively think, wow, what must it be like when when they see these images or they hear these things or, oh, this explains why that person got really upset in the meeting because now I understand their context. Again, I don't have to agree, mm-hmm. but I can understand their point of view. So cognitive empathy is more about perspective taking and information gathering. And that actually seems to resonate more with leaders because they're like, okay, I can do that at work. But often, again, the sneaky Trojan horse is that the more that you do that, the more you build that muscle of adopting another person's point of view, the more emotionally connected you get to them mm-hmm. and the more trust you build between yeah. the two. Yeah, I don't want uh, I don't want people to come away from this with, uh, w- you know, with the thought process that, listen, in a, in a business setting, you only have to worry about cognitive empathy because here's the thing. If you're mm-hmm. if you're making a pitch or if you're if you're just giving a speech to an audience, the first two or three minutes, you have to make that emotional connection at a visceral mm-hmm. level. So if you don't have a profound understanding for the audience and what, you know, what motivates them and what makes them tick, 
you're mm-hmm. it, it's not going to go the way you want it to go. So you need right. both sides of the coin. You can't you can't just pick one or the other. Right. And and just I think the difference is you don't have to be feeling what they're feeling. Right. You just have to acknowledge the emotion and understand where the emotion is coming from. So, you know, you can speak to groups that you might know nothing about their lives. You know, I I, I spoke to a group several years ago that was a group of veterinarians. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't know their lives. I don't know what they deal with on a daily basis. You know, I did as much research as I could, but I don't, I can't understand that emotion. I can imagine what that emotion is. And you can build that into your talk or build that into your pitch, but you don't necessarily have to be feeling the thing that they're feeling. It only requires you to, to acknowledge it and understand it's there and act accordingly. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. You know, as somebody who uh, who worked at a big consulting firm, there has to be uh, an element of empathy that was taught to you at the at the outset of the training. Because you know, you know, I think back to to the days when when I was at a, a big ticket consulting firm, and when we onboarded people who were new consultants, one of the first things you have to do is you do you know, some sort of diagnostic, like a strategic review or some type of review of the business and what's going on in the business. And businesses are, are made up of people. So in order to have the intellectual curiosity to get to the root of the problem, empathy is essential. And I remember thinking to myself, there were some of our, some of our most brilliant people, some of our senior scientists who were fantastic once the engagement got rolling, but they were terrible at the upfront diagnostic part because mm-hmm. they they didn't have the ability to get into the other person's world and see mm-hmm. things from their perspective. Talk about how we strengthen that skill set. How can people, if they want to be better at understanding mm-hmm. what people are going through and mm-hmm. what makes them tick, how can we strengthen that? I think the good news is that you can strengthen it. I think a lot of times there's people that cop out by saying, well, I'm just not naturally empathetic, mm-hmm. right? So this doesn't apply to me. And that's actually, you know, per your show title, that's BS. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Humans are hardwired for empathy. It's how our species has survived. Now, yes, are there exceptions to that? Sociopaths, maybe, you know, there's there's severely autistic children that that have trouble accessing their empathy. But even psychologists and therapists are able to work with severely autistic children to help them get in touch with their empathy and strengthen it. So mm-hmm. it's possible for all of us, but it, it is, you know, what it is, is it's like a muscle. And so we all, we all understand the analogy of, of going to the gym. And the first day you go to the gym, if you haven't worked out in a while, it's painful. Mm-hmm. It feels forced. It doesn't feel natural. It's hard work. You don't want to do it. But the more you go back, the more you build up the muscle and you build up that muscle memory. So for many of us, Empathy may have just atrophied over the years. Maybe it was our upbringing. Maybe it was, you know, sort of tamped down in a work environment where empathy wasn't acknowledged or rewarded or modeled. There's a variety of reasons, but the good news is the muscle's still there. Just like you still have abs, right? You could, you know, if you, if you did enough crunches, you'd see them, right? Yeah. So um, I think some of the things when you tell people like, here's some habits you can practice, they think, well, that seems like it's really, that's going to be really fake or forced but it's okay. Again, it's going to the gym, right? So Mm -hmm. the first one to start with is to practice presence. And that might sound really woo woo to some people, but 
it's about being in the moment and being able to get rid of the gunk in your own head to focus on the person in front of you. So if you go into a meeting, potentially a contentious meeting, and you are so full of your own anger, insecurity, like this is my own agenda. This is what I want to push, you know, and you've got all this stuff swimming in your head. There's no room in there for you to actually take an empathetic point of view and actively listen. You're going to go in like headbutting automatically. So you have to get yourself present and whatever that means to you, whatever you need to be grounded. So the hamster wheel is not going crazy in your head. For some people that is, you know, meditation and yoga, but mm. it doesn't have to be that. It could be you start your day with a cup of coffee without any screens for 10 minutes. Mm. All mindfulness experts say five or 10 minutes just to get some presence and get grounded. It's also, you know, deep breathing helps. Um, the second thing is you have to, you mentioned it earlier, this idea of curiosity and um, curiosity is the number one trait of empathetic people. So instead of going in with your own agenda, especially when you're disagreeing with somebody, ask questions, try to get to know their context. So this is something I have had to work on actively over the years. And now I've done it so much, I kind of do it automatically. So I try to take a step back and go, well, Dave, why do you think that? Walk me, walk me through where you got to that assumption. Walk me through why you think that's the definition of success. Like, tell me the magic phrase is tell me more. Mm. Whenever you're in a situation where you're having a disagreement or you're trying to understand somebody better, tell me more. Tell me more about that. That will help people, number one, keep talking and get them engaged and they'll tell you their point of view. But then the flip side of that is kind of the next tip. You have to actively listen to the answer. And that means, you know, really understanding, really being, that's why the presence comes in, really being present to what they're saying. Um, practice. I always talk about silencing my, my inner voice because there's the things of I'm listening to what you're saying, but I'm thinking about what I want to say in response. Sure. Right? If it helps write down what you're, what you're thinking or what you're going to respond to so that you get it out of your head and you can focus on the person talking to you. Yeah. And let them talk, let actively listen, repeat back. Okay. So what I hear you saying is X, that's another key phrase you can use. And then they can say, no, that's not what I said at all. Mm. What I said was this, and you can, you can work it out and really understand where someone's coming from. And then the third thing is to really explore with your own imagination. So a great way to build up your own empathy. And it's going to sound, I mean, to me, it sounds fun because I do acting in my spare time, but Books, music, theater, film, documentaries, read and learn and experience things about people who are not like you for the sole purpose of putting yourself in a position where you go, I wonder what it would be like to be that person. I wonder what it'd be like to survive a war as a child. I wonder what it would be like to grow up as a black man in America. I wonder what it would be like to be a child of divorce. Whatever the, the situation, consume those 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 things so that you can, again, get into the practice of thinking about what things are like for someone else. And the arts, whether it's music or theater or film or documentary, are a great, a great exercise in empathy because you're literally pulling up a chair and you're witnessing someone else's life. And to be able to do that and to keep that curiosity about what someone else's life is like, you will carry that into your work with you as you work with people of diverse backgrounds and experiences. Yeah, those are those are great strategies. Thanks for sharing them with us. One of the one of the things that I, I want to highlight that you that you mentioned there is so important, and it's it's missing from a lot of people's uh, approach, whether it be in sales or in leadership. 
that's being present being you know we have we have a phrase if you if you've ever done uh, stand up comedy or even improvisational theater yeah. there's a phrase be in the room and what that means is be present alert and aware of everything that's around you and be focused on what you're doing and i'm a i'm a huge advocate of not multitasking because I find that whenever I multitask, I'm not focused on whatever the most important thing is. Just like you, you shouldn't text and drive, right? You, you shouldn't have a conversation and be checking your email. You shouldn't have a conversation and be sending a text message on your phone. Well, when you're with a client, you have to be in the room. You have to be focused on what the client is saying, but more importantly, what's behind the words and yes. where the words are coming from and your your thoughts about um, meditation helping you be in the room. That's where I, I meditate and that's where I first learned about meditation was in, and I let's, let, let's face it, I did stand up as a way to improve my public speaking. I didn't do it because I thought I was gonna be the next Kevin Hart, far from it. Right. Um, and I remember, you know, hanging around with the other people, the other comics, and hearing them talk about how, you know, in order to stay focused, they uh, they practiced, and the, and there were there are all different types of meditation, and who had a favorite type. And I thought to myself, well, if, if it can help these people go up and do what is the hardest thing that I've had to experience in my professional career. Maybe mm -hmm. it can help me, and it stuck. I mean, you know, the stand up. I had I had little kids, so the stand up didn't stick because it was lit too many late nights. But the right. um, but the 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 being in the moment, the being present, yeah. stuck with me, and it's been extremely helpful. It's amazing how I can be in a room with two other people. Uh, you know, part of my team, we can go to a meeting. And it's like, I hear things they didn't hear. And they, they're like, what, what meeting were you in? And yeah. the thing is, you were, you were on the computer. You were, you were trying to make sure we had the next slide ready to go. You weren't listening. And, you know, I understand that that was, that was your role in this. And, you know, this, this is so important that it, it makes all the difference in the world. It could be the difference between you know, getting a big client or starting a relationship that will lead to very high lifetime value in the well, long and, term. And also to your point, not just about even listening to their words, but, you know, what is it? 85% of what we communicate is nonverbal. Right. And, you know, I know we're not all in the same room together a lot right now, but, you know, that's why Zoom is wonderful or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, video conferencing opportunity you have. And I feel like what's happened in this pandemic, which is kind of interesting, is that because people are forced to do video conference calls, they have to be in front of the computer. They have to be there. Mm -hmm. They can't be sort of like doing stuff on their computer while they're on a video call. Right. Like I found that the attention span is a little bit more focused right now because you kind of have to do your thing. You can't be you can't be doing a lot of other things. You can't be jumping up or people can't be interrupting you coming into the room. And I mean, they can, obviously we've got dogs and kids and whatever, but sure. for the most part, people on video calls are on the video call. Yeah. Like it magnifies everything. And if I was sitting here, you know, with you on my phone right now, like there's a whole screen on me right, right now. Right. So, you know, I just feel like it's, you know, versus when I've gone to meetings in an office where someone is like, you know, they, their, their attention drifts. And they're, you know, then they, they pull out the phone and like, oh, there's, you know, six other people in the room. No one's going to see me checking my phone or, you know, 
futzing around with my computer. Sure. But yeah, I mean, and to your point, like that, that's the thing is that presence can be practiced in whatever way works for you. That's again, another thing that mindfulness experts talk about. It's if, if it's a jog for you, go for a jog. If it's having a, a meeting while you're walking, there's a lot of people that stay a little bit more present when they're walking, mm-hmm. you know, and the pandemic has afforded opportunities for that. Um, like I said, even just that cup of coffee with no screen time, yeah. whatever it is, the deep breathing, it doesn't have to be like nine weeks at an ashram in India. It can be <laughs> whatever you need it to be to, to, to silence the, the chaos in your head. Uh, talk about how empathy helps with two things uh, specifically, decisiveness and curiosity. How does empathy help with both of those things? Well, it's interesting because I think curiosity leads to empathy. So, uh, but I think empathy, the more you practice that, the more curious you get, Mm. you know, the more that it kind of leads you down these, these pathways and can uncover these conversations and these, these discussions that might not have been uncovered had you not asked the follow-up question, had you not said, tell me more, Mm. tell me more. So I think it's, it's kind of a very symbiotic relationship between curiosity and empathy and that it feeds each other. Um, with decisiveness, I came across some of this in the research and I can't remember the exact, uh, quote around it uh, that I found in the research, but it talked about the fact that empathetic leaders are actually more decisive because if you're able to learn how to see things from other points of view and assess those other points of view very quickly, and then be able to use that to make decisions, you're not wasting a lot of time getting influenced by the next person you talk to, the next person you talk to. If you're if you're taking an empathetic approach from the start, before you make the decision, you're, you're actually soliciting feedback. Mm. So then you can synthesize all that feedback and go based on all that feedback, I'm making this decision and I can feel confident about this decision. So when I interviewed several very high-performing leaders who I would classify as empathetic, they said, you know, decisions for me are not a problem. I mean, th- there are tough decisions I have to make, but being indecisive in, a, in and of itself is not empathetic because you leave people hanging. They're unsure. They're scared. They don't know what's coming. They don't know, you know, where to go or what to do. And so if you're indecisive, if you're, if you're in that frozen moment, it could be because again, you're not getting out of your own head enough. You're not soliciting enough feedback to feel confident in a decision, but many of the most empathetic leaders are very, very decisive as a result of it. Yeah. Now let's, let's zoom out a little bit. Talk about brands. How do you incorporate this, um, this trait, this characteristic, this quality that seems personal, very personal. Mm -hmm. How do you incorporate that into a brand as a whole? Is it as simple as like Nordstrom's taking back the tires that they didn't sell? I mean, how do you, how do you have an empathetic brand? Yeah. I mean, that's one way it's, I call that operationalizing empathy. So if you're seeing things from your customer's point of view, what are your policies and practices? And are you doing an audit of them so that you're removing the friction for people and you're removing the pain, right? So you can operationalize empathy like my hospital did when I was, was in the hospital with my brain injury. Mm. But, um, I also think something you said earlier was spot on, which is a company and a brand are merely a collection of people. Mm -hmm. And when I spoke to Jay Baer, the marketing expert on my podcast, he reiterated this, that like, I don't know if a brand can be empathetic per se, but you can 
you can bring a group of, of empathetic people together and you can have people act with empathy, thus giving the reputation to the company of being empathetic because your brand perception is based on the one person you talk to from that company, mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a 10,000 person company or a 10 person company, your, man, your brand is made or broken by the interaction of one person to a customer. And so if you are hiring the right people, if you are all aligned on mission, that's actually a really important part of being an empathetic brand is, is everybody, does everybody know which way we're rowing? Does everyone know why they're here? Because if you give people a sense of purpose and a sense of mission, they're going, you don't have to give them 5 million rules on how to act every minute of the day. They know what they're there for and they all know why they're there and they can act accordingly based on that. And they can also be inspired by that and get excited about it. Like, oh, my job is more than just billing our vendors. My job is in pursuit of this larger mission and this larger purpose that our company has. So in the research, many companies that are perceived as empathetic brands are often very strongly aligned on mission. They have a very strong values code. They have a very strong ethos around the type of person they hire. And they do hire based on emotional intelligence, not just the resume. But mm. to your point, it's, it's not just the, the what you're able to do, but how you're able to do it. Um, and then in our digital world, you know, there's so many opportunities to create a brand that is seen as empathetic. That is people feel like, oh, this company understands me. Everything from your automated emails to your, you know, if you get do chat over the Internet. What, what is the response? What is the experience of the customer? So how are you crafting the customer experience as a brand to make them feel like you get them, to make them feel like you understand where they're coming from? Um, there's, a, there's a famous story you may remember from the book about Ryanair Airlines, which is a discount airline in Europe. Sure. And they, they're very similar to Southwest here in the US, but they implemented in 2015 a campaign called Always Getting Better where they actually looked at the travel experience from the customer point of view and created policies and did away with rules and regulations that were causing more friction. So, you know, allocated seating, baggage fees, a host of other things. And the following year, their profits increased by 43%. And their CEO was quoted as saying, if I had known being nice to our customers was so profitable, I would have done it years ago, which is, you know, hopefully a little tongue in cheek. But, you know, and again, it wasn't about being nice. It was about creating an experience as a company so that that customer now thinks that that brand is empathetic and gets me and understands me. Yeah. And the point that it was, uh, I think assumed in everything that you said is that the, your marketing, the image that you're portraying to the world is essentially making a brand promise. And then that promise is fulfilled by the people who are yes. on the front lines delivering to the end user, to the customer, because there are no neutral interactions. Your, your brand is either going to be strengthened by an interaction you have with somebody from the organization, or it's going to be weakened by the interaction that you have with somebody from the organization. So mm -hmm. all you CEOs who are listening out there, you have to align your people with your brand and you're investing millions, tens of millions of dollars in your marketing and advertising and you're not investing enough in the research required to put the right people in front of the customer. And I just want to say a point of uh, personal privilege because it is my show. When you send your customer service calls to another country and people in that country are not adequately 
immersed in the experience that your brand wants to provide, mm -hmm. you are destroying the fabric that you're trying to build with mm -hmm. your branding. So, yeah. I mean, it's it would be better for you to close customer service than to have someone service the customer who's not immersed in the right. the experience that you're trying to provide. Now, look, if you're Walmart and the crappy experience is part of the low prices, then that's your brand. Then take all the cashiers away and let everybody run through self-checkout and, you know, be confused when the thing doesn't work. And, you know, I mean, that's what that's if you want that to be your brand, then that's what your brand is going to be. But as long as people inhabit the earth, people make up the fabric of, of the fulfillment of your brand promise. Right. Um, let talk to me about how empathy can help you make better deals, right? We, we touched a little bit on negotiation. So mm -hmm. how can empathy help me make a better deal for myself or in my business? I think you landed on it earlier when you talked about the fact that if, and we both kind of talked about this, which is if you're listening and you are trying to understand the context of where someone's coming from, you can find common ground and build from there. So it doesn't become like a, a, a friend of mine, Bronwyn Saglin Benny is a communications coach and she talks about no enemy conversations. And it's the fact that you go into it thinking we want to come to an agreement that benefits both of us, not necessarily like a lukewarm compromise that neither of us are happy with, but empathy enables you to have that productive conversation, to listen, to ask questions, to understand context so that you can come to something that's, you know, less about, well, this is what I want. This is what you want. You know, what do we do? And let's cross our arms and, and sit across from the table. I'm not going to give anything. But you may find that when you try to understand the other person's point of view, you can see where there's some give and take. You can see where there's, you know, okay, first of all, let's establish that we're both after the same goal. That's the most important part of any negotiation is you've got to establish, even if it's the most ridiculous thing and you think, why do we even need to say that? Say it in mm -hmm. the course of the discussion because it, it does something to articulate it out loud. So if you're in a contentious budget meeting, let's say you're sales and marketing executive, sales executive and a marketing executive, and you are, you know, butting heads over budget and butting heads over, you know, is it marketing didn't provide enough leads or sales didn't close enough deals? You know, the classic, the classic rift between sales and marketing in the conversation stop for a minute and go, look, let's start from a place where we both agree. Can we both agree that we want the company to make its number next quarter? We're both after that, right? And call it out. And then you can build up from there. Like, right, okay. But your way, Dave, to do that is X, Y, and Z. My way is A, B, and C. But since we're both after the same goal, let's figure out if, if there's actually a D, E, and F path mm -hmm. to get us to that goal. And then we can start to hash out the details of that. But there's something magical about calling out the common goal in the middle of the meeting and not assuming you both know why you're there. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That's, that's spot on. I think that's terrific. All right. So Maria Ross, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, but besides going out and buying the empathy edge, take my fat finger off the word empathy, the empathy <laughs> edge is available wherever you get your books. I got mine on Amazon. Um, besides going out and buying the book, how else can they get involved with Maria Ross? Well, two ways. They can go to my main hub, which is red-slice.com and learn about my work, see some other books, get in touch with me, read the blog, and they can download a free guide there on the five business benefits of empathy. 
Okay. Um, so kind of a, a summary of what we've talked about here. And then also they can check out the podcast and the book, which is at theempathyedge.com. Um, the Red Slice website will get you there too, but they can go straight there. They can subscribe to the podcast. They can contact me and they can buy the book from there as well. And I'm Perfect. also on the socials. I'm on Twitter at Red Slice. I'm on Instagram at Red Slice Maria. Love, love interacting there and getting followers. And um, I'm also on LinkedIn. So if folks want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I would love that. Just mention this show in the, in the personalized invite so that I know to connect with you. Okay. So we're going to put all that in the show notes. You can connect with Maria everywhere and go out and get a copy of The Empathy Edge. It's uh, it's a terrific book. It's a great read and it will be your competitive advantage. Make sure, make sure that you really immerse yourself in it because I think this is the missing ingredient to what a lot of people are looking for. If you're looking for the slight edge, start with empathy. Start with the empathy edge. Hey, look what I did there. Well, Maria Ross, <laughs> it was absolutely wonderful having you on. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We will be back here again tomorrow. This is the Inside BS Show. We take you inside business strategy. We share all the insider business secrets and we cut through all the inside BS that's bogging you down. Until tomorrow, here's hoping you Make a great living and live a great life.